Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. Bill. How are you doing? I, I can't hear you over the loud applause. I'm sorry, but everybody please tone it down a little yeah, bit because yeah, I'm trying please, to talk here. Please. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm doing great, RFM. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about tonight's show. Nothing gets me so excited as white collar crime. Love it. I just wanted to say Mormonism took away the opportunity that I would have a planet someday. And so let me go this way. So what I did was I'm now raising sea monkeys. So I've got my own little universe back here with my own little species that I've hatched and created. I created them spiritually before I created them physically. And uh, now they're in my little pot back here. And they're about uh, six days old and getting bigger and swimming all over the place. And there's hundreds of them. This reminds me of one of my favorite Bart Simpson lines. God schmod, I want my sea monkeys. That's right. And I kind of feel that way. Like Mormonism... I'm giving you a big F you for taking my planet away, and I'm just going to have my own little universe that I'm in control of. Okay. All right. Good for, good for you. I like that. That shows independence, initiative, and creative thinking. I, I love it. All of those. And just a little note to the listeners, folks, again, we appreciate everybody who donates. This show's a big deal, and uh, uh, we put a lot of time and energy into it. And uh, we donations have kind of slipped off maybe the last three to four weeks. Uh, folks, if there's anybody out there who's not donating, if you would at least consider it. And if you can, uh, if you could go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button and uh, just a small recurring donation. We don't, don't need much, but if we could just get something, three or five bucks a month would be great. Um, I think you're going to be excited about the content that is coming up. I don't know if you want to announce any of those topics, RFM, but we've been talking behind the scenes at least for the next two or three weeks about what we're going to cover. And we're super excited. So we're going to keep bringing you guys great material. Yes, we are. And in addition to tonight's show, which is uh, the one, this is my week. Okay. So I've been involved in this for actually a number of months now. So very excited about it. On top of that, tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, my time in the, what, the anti-meridian. I've got to be available awake, hopefully to do part two of the Mormon stories podcast about Elder Bednar's address at the National Press Club last Thursday. Apparently, the Deseret News did an audio highlight clip where they changed his inadvertent slip of saying millions to what is correctly billions. Oh, gotcha. Billions and billions. I I will say, doesn't it surprise you? He admits to being a statistician. He's in the top 15 leadership of the church, and he doesn't know the numbers of who's leaving. Yeah, that's very surprising. But that's, of course, he only knows it when when he's talking as an apostle and not as a statistician. Right, because he preferences one over the other. Yes. I mean, that's actually what he says, but we don't want to give away the whole show tomorrow. We've no. got a show to do tonight. You should definitely tune in tomorrow to hear RFM and John DeLynn and others uh, go over the data in, in regarding that question. That would be great. Yes. Thank you, Doug. You're awesome. Doug Vincent, thank you. Yeah, another one up there too, by the way, Megan Evans. Oh my gosh. Thank you Look so much, that. Megan. 
We appreciate you guys. Thank you. Uh, yes. All right. So tonight, tonight we're talking about Mormon affinity fraud. And as most of you may have heard, it seems that Utah is the capital affinity fraud, the affinity fraud capital of the United States. And um, Bill, what are you doing? I'm just, to be stroking I'm, your just, I'm just a, pondering the fact that you, anytime Utah is first or last in anything, I just like, I get the little tingles again, like the Holy Ghost almost, where my hair stands up on my neck and raises up on my arm and I get a warm feeling in my chest trying to wonder what's going on. Well, I remember uh, being a member of the church and going to church all the time and hearing about all the, the number one rankings of the LDS church in the United States. And it was always, oh, the healthiest, the longest lived the um uh the most educated but there's a lot of other places where they hit number one where they don't mention that in church and this is one of them i think so yeah. it's left to us to talk about it tonight yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear what we have to say all right well we're going to use as our key example tonight an individual named galen russ that she excuse me that's g-a-y-l-e-n galen russ some of you may have already heard about him because it's certainly been making the news he was just sentenced recently i think last uh, march it was and we have a video clip to clue you in on what happened at that hearing perfect is headed to prison galen rust pleaded guilty to charges involving a ponzi scheme as fox 13 news reporter nate carlisle shows us some of his victims hope to get some of their money back the judge called it one of the largest Ponzi schemes in Utah history before he sentenced Galen D. Russ to 19 years in prison. The judge also ordered Russ to repay $153 million, but one victim doesn't expect Russ to have the money. My dad and I together, we lost about $150,000. After some co-workers told him about the Rust Rare Coin Silver Trading Program, Bryce Oplanop was one of more than 500 victims who invested. I wish it were longer, but I also realized that you know, him spending time in jail doesn't get anybody their money back. 19 years is the largest sentence ever handed down in a fraud case by a federal judge in this district. Jacob Strain prosecuted Rust. Because there was no silver, there was no trading, and there was no program. It was just taking money in and uh, paying money out to investors to get the appearance of profitability. Rust, now 62 years old, paid a few investors with the $200 million he collected. He also spent on a $2 million home in Layton, racehorses, mistresses, and charitable contributions. Alan Roska, a victim's attorney who spoke to Fox 13 in December, on Tuesday told the judge about families who lost the chance to retire and how some can no longer make mortgage payments. A receiver is trying to repay something to the victims by liquidating Rust family assets and trying to recover money the Rust donated. I've heard pennies on the dollar. I'm not expecting much. Minutes after Rust's sentencing, his son, Joshua Rust, pleaded guilty to one count of wire fraud. His sentencing is scheduled for May 31st. Galen Rust's now ex-wife, Denise Gunderson Rust, has also pleaded guilty to a fraud count and already served an 18-month prison sentence. At the federal courthouse in Salt Lake City, Nate Carlisle, Fox 13 News, Utah. The judge ordered Rust to surrender to U.S. Marshals tomorrow. Um, before you pull that off the screen, I was going to go back here. Um, let's see if I can find that other little picture just before. Whoop. Oh, man, I'm going to 
there. That that looks like a guy like a guy who's got a a glowy countenance, doesn't it? Yeah, it could be. Um, now you're making me think of this. Uh, Brad Wilcox's good-looking brother. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna say like, there's a that's a guy who looks like he would be a high priest in a ward, uh, looks like a good Mormon guy. Um, he's got that look. So I just I just know because sometimes in our culture we sometimes judge people by appearance, good or bad, and uh, it doesn't always hold up well. You know, there was actually a recent uh, article, and I think it was Psychology Today, that looked at three studies that had been done. And what they showed, surprisingly enough, is that people tended to overestimate their ability to judge a person's honesty by their appearance. Yeah. Yeah, and in Mormonism, we're taught to do that. Well, yeah, and certainly based upon their um, their appearance and their priesthood position. Yeah, yep. Anyway, go ahead and continue. Okay, great. Well, we're going to be talking about this case specifically, and I'm very, very pleased to announce that we have a special guest on tonight's show, which is Galen's Rust's daughter, Alicia. And this is Alicia Franklin, which is her married name. So she's on the show. She's going to tell us a little bit about what's been happening behind the scenes with this case and maybe giving us a cautionary tale about what to look for and how not to fall for this kind of scam. Alicia, are you there? Yes. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Every time I see that clip, it makes my uh, stress levels go up a bit because it's kind of just surreal that this actually happened. But other than that, I'm doing I'm doing well. In fact, I have an interesting comment about that photo you just showed. Uh, the other news um, stations left it on. I believe Fox is the one that cut it off. But if you were to see the full picture, there's a giant portrait of Joseph Smith's hanging above that uh, piano um, that has a quote next to it about Joseph Smith being amazing and something that I actually created when I was a young woman. So the, mm. the, that is like, if you saw the whole picture, it would have been the perfect portrait of my father sitting in front of Joseph Smith. So oh, man. Okay. Irony upon irony. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, when I first ta started talking with you, Alicia, which was back in March of this year, um, I'm going to want you to explain this a little bit to the audience, if you would. But there is a potential for you to be charged in this case. And I can't remember the exact term that you used for it. It's a federal law term, and I practice state law. But... Uh, I certainly talked to you at some length, and I've talked to you since then more, but before you appeared on tonight's show, I wanted to make sure that you had cleared that with your attorney. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And you have, and he's given the thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Well, we're going to talk about the impact this has had on you both emotionally as well as financially here in a minute. But when I first started hearing from you about your, your dad, Galen Rust, and I thought, Rust? He owns a rare coin shop. This has to do with silver. And I thought, wait a second, I know another fellow with the last name Rust associated with the Mark Hoffman case who got taken in by Mark Hoffman by trusting him too much. And it turns out that's not your dad, Galen. That's your grandfather, Al. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about your grandfather, Al, who since passed, correct? Uh, no. Oh. Unless it happened, no. I hate he's to break it to you. <laughs> Live on air, I'm sorry. No, he's still. I'm glad he's still around. 
yeah, I know his health is declining, but um, he's, yeah, he's still, in fact, I think he just had a birthday, big family celebration that, of course, because I do not live in Utah, I'm quite removed from Utah. I was not a part of, but um, yeah, my grandfather started Rust, at the time it was called Rust Coin and Gift, um, you know, decades ago, and uh, he he learned more about the coin store and, or the coin collecting in the industry. And so he decided, you know what, I'm going to start my own business. And so he did and um, had that for years. And Mark Hoffman, you know, when he started his forgeries, uh, he came into my grandfather's shop a lot. And I believe um, started with coins initially and learned a lot from my grandfather and understanding the business by coming in and buying and selling. And then he was able to, you know, ultimately hone his skills enough to, to sell back a lot of these forgeries to my grandfather. And it was, it started with coins, but then moved into the Mormon currency, which is a much more, you know, a much higher ticket item. Um, Coins definitely have value, but the early Mormon currency has um, significantly more value, especially in the, in the collector's market. So um, he was really good. And of course, my grandfather thought that he just had this fantastic client who was able to, you know, find these different documents and, and then he sold them and um, yeah, eventually got involved with um, being one of his, the people that was going to purchase the McClellan case that Mark Hoffman claimed that he had found. And yes, um, the McClellan collection that he said he found by a, at an unnamed person's residence in Texas, correct? And I don't know all of the details because I was quite young for all of those things, but I definitely uh, that that made a huge impact on our family with my grandfather being willing to put his you know neck on the line, and then ultimately it cost him. My understanding is that what Mark Hoffman was doing at the time is that he doesn't have any collection; it doesn't even exist. But that he was trying to get money from different people, your granddad being one of them, to finance his purchase of the collection. And he took a whole bunch of money from your dad because this is a big deal to have the McClellan collection. And at this point, people believed Mark Hoffman was legitimate and your granddad did, too. And he gave him a whole bunch of money to buy this. And of course, there was nothing to be bought, number one. And number two, he's unaware that Mark Hoffman is doing the same exact thing with other parties, getting them to front the amount of money that he needs to purchase this McClellan collection. Mm -hmm. So what happened then to your granddad and to his his business as a result. And what did he do to try and make things right? Yeah. So of course there was this confusion around what was happening because my grandfather gave Hoffman the money and then was supposed to go meet with um, president Hinckley at the time to sell the collection to the church. And there had been communications there. um, But of course Hoffman twisted it. And so they, there was not clear communication essentially, you know, my grandfather realized that, hey, this is, there's no collection actually. And and that he had, he was never going to get a penny back of the money that he put forward. Um, And then when it came out that Mark Hoffman had, that, that he was a fraud and that the, the documents that he had created were forgeries, my grandfather had sold many things that he had purchased from Hoffman to other clients and investors. And so he contacted them and um, and bought them back with his own money. So not only did he lose the money that he had put forward to buy the collection, the, the you know the so-called McClellan collection, he then um, used his you know own money out of his own pocket to buy back the 
the fraud, fraudulent documents and currency that he had then that he had sold previously to customers and clients. And so it just, you know, ended up being a tremendous amount of debt that he took on his shoulders and, and growing way, up. The, oh, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. By the way, I was just doing a little research. We're talking $150,000 that your granddad, Al Rust, had loaned to Mark Hoffman to purchase the McClellan collection. So he yeah. sounds like a man of great integrity. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Like growing up, this was a huge... Um, so my my relationship with my grandparents and my my father's side of the family was always strained because there was definitely some some strain there. And so there wasn't a lot other, outside of when I was really young, there wasn't a lot of interaction with my grandparents, but especially with my grandfather, like this was something that I heard a lot growing up that, you know, the slogan for his business was rust is the name you can trust. And that was something that I held very close to my heart because I would I heard my father talk about these the story of my grandfather and and the amazing integrity that he showed for these people that put their trust in in him. And so that was something that I always just really admired about my grandfather and 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 to tell you the truth about my father for a long time, because that was like the legacy of our name that we moved forward. And then, you know, finding out about what my father did, it was just kind of mind blowing. But my grandfather, that's definitely something that I still to this day admire in him. Yeah. So as, as far as your father, Galen, goes, that he came by the trade of dealing in coins and precious metals, honestly, if I can use the expression, because that's what his dad did. Yes. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about what your father Galen did as part of this whole business that he had. By the way, before we do that, can you just explain what the nature of the fraud was that he was engaged in and that he has been convicted of and sentenced for? Yeah. So um, basically, I mean, there's still some stuff going around in the courts because everything hasn't completely closed. So for anybody who's interested in all the nitty gritty details, it's public knowledge. You can look it up. But um, essentially, he created a Ponzi scheme, and what he called it was a, the Silver Pool program. Um, and he, for, I mean, as long as I can remember, they one of the one of the parts of the business of the coin business was he worked with um, precious metals. So there were coins and paper money that people collected, but then people could also come in and, and invest money in gold and silver and platinum and palladium and things like that. And so silver was one of the precious metals that a lot of people invested in. Um, and, and they would often, uh, even when I was a, when I was a teenager, I worked at the shop. And so people would come in and they would, you know, with however much money they wanted to invest, they would pay and then take silver, whether it was rolls of silver dollars or bags of junk coin, junk silver coin. And they would take the actual, you know, precious metal with them and then pay us. And of course they would have paper receipt. Well, my father had investors who would spend, you know, instead of a few hundred dollars or even a few thousand dollars, it would be tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm sure some of them were, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they didn't want to have the actual silver with them because that's a lot. And so he had a, um, I don't even know the proper term, basically a company who, who stored it all that had these big vaults and whatever. And um, so he would tell people that here's, you know, here's, they would give him the money and then he would give them a receipt and say, I have all of your silver in, in, you know, storage. 
So um, the problem was he didn't actually have the silver, but nobody knew that. Everybody, I mean, all of his clients and everybody in the family, like that we all assumed that, that the silver was there. So what he was doing was taking people's money, saying that they actually had something that wasn't there, and then using that to run this um, essentially a Ponzi scheme, but it was what he called the silver pool investment program. All right. Well, you know, I have actually dealt with a number of clients who have been accused of white collar crime. And frequently the intricacies of it are so complicated that it takes me a long time to untangle it and figure out what's going on. This is very straightforward. He's selling silver certificates with no silver to back it up. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, the thought did cross my mind while speaking with you that in this case, as in other cases, what Joe Citizen does is illegal. But if the federal government does it, it's fine. Yeah, we've had that conversation a lot in our home. <laughs> Have you? Because the federal government's been doing that since Richard Nixon. Yes. Okay. But still, that doesn't make it okay for your dad to do it. No. Yeah, no. So what I would like to know next, if that's all right, is... Can we talk about your dad, because he's traveling all about buying up silver collections and selling them and doing all sorts of things at trade shows. Is that correct across the country? Yeah, he he did that um, more specifically when I was younger. Um, he didn't do it as much as I got older and you know graduated from high school and got married and things like that. But when I was young at home, he did that often because he was taking basically the business that my grandfather had started that was kind of this this fun mom and pop hobby shop into a, a really well-known um, business throughout the country. And so to kind of do that growth, he went, I know a lot of them were in um, like down in Long Beach, California, and there were several in Florida and all up the East Coast. So he was traveling a lot and going to these trade shows and coin shows and then meeting with other clients that he would meet there for their um, you know, if somebody passed away and, and there was a big collection in the family, he would then go and do appraisals and purchase and things like that. Hope oh, your sound cut out. You're muted, Arva. Apologize. This is what there. happens. What I'm trying to do, what Bill has been doing from the beginning <laughs> of the show, is uh, I spin plates and they fall on the ground. So, uh, was there anything about that, though, that with your dad and his particular psychological makeup that played into that or anything? Um, when I was young, I didn't know, but yeah, there was a lot. And this didn't come out until, um, so, a f so the, we found out about what was happening, um, in, at the end of 2018, that's when we actually found out that something was up and my dad was doing something illegal. Um, but about five years prior, um, we found out that he, when he was a child, there was a lot of abuse in his, um, for a long time in his childhood in his home. And so there was a lot of weird behaviors that, that happened just growing up that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And of course, as a child, you know, because that's all, you know, like I didn't question anything, but then once I got married and started to, and, and I shouldn't say even just got married once I left my home, once I left, you know, kind of on my own and then um, moving into marriage, I, there were just things about my dad that didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and so I kind of 
I pushed the, I, I asked a lot of questions and I pushed to have answers. And so finally, even though my dad had hit it for, you know, at the time I was 23. Um, so that would have meant the oldest child was near 30. And I mean, he had, he'd hit it his whole life and, and into all of our lives. And then it finally came out that he had had this, this abuse happen to him. And, um, and that he, he, his mental state was a little bit different than the rest of us. We started to see that some of his behaviors, um, some of them, like he would, he, he just believed that he could take on the world and that he would not really, I don't know if it was not really think about the consequences, but just had this kind of like belief in himself that like, I can, I can take on anything. Um, and so I would definitely say that that, played a role and as all of this unraveled. Um, and then going back to your um, question about like his traveling and what was happening then, I asked him probably a year or so into the investigation because I was just trying to make sense of like, you know, growing up hearing this, you know, slogan of the family business of rest is the name you can trust. And then here I'm finding out that my dad's lying. And like, there was just so much stuff that I couldn't make sense of. And so I asked him one day, said, help me, like, where did this start? When, when did when did it be okay to start lying? Because when this all came out, there was no like, oh, yep, I got caught. Sorry, I lied. Like, he genuinely, and I mean, probably still to this day while he's in prison, I would bet he would still say genuinely he was doing the right thing. He was doing good with what, you know, this, this whole thing that he created. Um, and so when I was asking him these questions, like trying to make sense of like, okay, we were honest and now all of a sudden we're not honest. And like, where did, where did that go? And he told me that he, he said it started when he was beginning to travel for these trade shows and things, because apparently in the eighties, especially, and I know it has continued since then, um, there were, a, there were a lot of crimes committed against coin dealers because especially if they went to these trade shows, they would often, you know, carry their coins in briefcases or, or people that had collections, they would carry them in briefcases or, a, you know, a box or something. And, you know, sometimes they're worth $100, but sometimes they're worth, you know, $100,000. And so they would purchase these collections or go sell a collection. And they had these valuable things that are, you know, something small you could fit in your pocket. And so, people were getting targeted by mobs and mafia, um, especially I know on the East coast and they would be, they would be, you know, taken out essentially because there was so much money and value there. So my father said in the, in the, the group of coin dealers and, and things like that and the um, numismatics world, they were encouraged to kind of come up with a, an, not an alternate personality, but this this other persona that they could claim if somebody wanted to come after them, they could put on this other persona and and as a as a safety precaution essentially. And so my dad said that's when you know it started because it was a safety thing, not just for him and his business, but as for our family in general. And uh, so that's when he essentially started. I think leaning into the lies more than just saying like a little white lie here and there it was, he was really starting to lean into the lies and have this alternate personality that he had while this was all going on. Can we go to your mom 
And I want to set the stage, though, for her discovery that something's wrong, something's mm -hmm. up. Because this is a family business. It's your dad's business. Your mom works there full time. You work there too, correct? I did from the age of probably 14 until I was 17, almost 18 and left for college. Right. And your brother worked there? Uh, my oldest brother worked there for a long time. I mean, That's Joshua? Yeah. Yes. So this is a family business. You're all working together, at least when all of you are there, I understand. And you, there are different people working at different times, but mainly it's your dad and your mom who are the constants yeah. in this business and other family members uh, from time to time. But there comes a point because he's doing this all on his own and he's not letting anybody else in the family know about it because mm -hmm. obviously it's supposed to be a secret. Mm -hmm. When does your mom figure out something's up? So I can't remember the exact date, but um, my mom, just to give like a little bit of backstory to make a little bit more sense of this, my, the only people that had the ability to sign checks uh, for the business, for the, you know, the accounts when, when people would come in and, and like, hey, I want to sell my silverback and get these large, you know, get their money. Um, the only people that, that were signatories on the accounts were my dad and my mom and my oldest brother. And the reason Joshua was on that account as well was because he, even though my dad owned the business, by this time, my dad was like off creating other businesses. And the main coin business was like funding these. And my oldest brother had been managing and running the coin shop for, I mean, a long time. Um, probably, probably 15 years. And um, so that's why he was brought into it because he had signatory powers. Well, again, in with investing, I mean, I'm sure there are people that don't care who know what they do with their money, but there's a lot of people who don't really want everybody to know what they're doing with their money. And so my dad had a lot of clients that he'd worked with for a long time and worked with their family, families per, you know, for decades. And then my grandfather worked with them before that. So there was this relationship there where they would come and want to do investments, but they didn't want their name to be known. And so it was not unusual for somebody to come in and invest money or sell a collection or something, and they want it to stay, you know, confidential. And so my dad had his own, you know, files on his computer with the people that, that he kind of had code names for essentially. And so he would then just tell my mom who was kind of the her, her, her name was secretary, but pretty much my mom did everything to maintain everything stable. I mean, my dad was just so disorganized, but had these big ideas and my mom kept it all going. Alicia, yeah, can I tell you, it's been my experience that that's what most secretaries do. <laughs> well, my mom was definitely good at it. Bless her soul. Um, so that's what would happen. My dad would come out of his office and say, you know, client XYZ sold, whatever, can you write the check for this amount and send it to this address? And my mom didn't question it. And my brother didn't question it because that was normal. And so this is how he was able to go through the process of, you know, creating this with not anybody knowing because, and, and nobody questioning either because it was normal and, and, consistent with business practices for, again, for decades that they had been doing for there to be people who just didn't want to be named. Um, 
So that's kind of how it went. So knowing that my mom, when my mom found out that something was up, um, so the, there was an FBI raid that happened on November 15th, 2018. And two weeks prior to that, there was a customer that had come in and I believe, and, and I don't, know all of the details clearly. I know that there were some people that the FBI had been sending in undercover to try and get some information about my dad, because I, I know that there was a disgruntled employee, which I'm sure he had lots of reason to be disgruntled with my father, um, who I think probably tipped them off that, hey, I, I think there's something odd going on here. Anyway, so I don't know if this guy was necessarily undercover for the FBI at the time or if he was just genuinely a customer that was coming in and was upset and wanted his money because he felt like something was wrong. Um, but he got into an argument with my father in my father's office. And so my dad had an office and then outside of my father's office was his quote unquote secretary that was not my mom. She was sitting here and her kind of space was open. And then my mom had another office with a closed door. So my mom heard the argument from her closed door office across the hall from my father's closed door office. There was there was this arguing going on, which didn't ever happen. And so she was like, OK, what's up? She went out just in time to see the, the client like storm out and be really angry and, and yelling, whatever. And um, and so she went into my father's office and was like, hey, what was that all about? By the way, she and, heard the argument. Did you mention what the nature of the argument was? I I know it was the the client was upset about this. It was around the silver pool, the, the silver trading program, and that he wanted his money. And I think that he wanted it. And my, and my father from this is what I had heard from my mother. My father was notorious for being late on some of these payments. So somebody would say, hey, I'm ready to cash in X amount of my silver and I'm ready to get my payment. And so my father would be like, okay, let me run your reports and get everything organized. And he was notoriously late because by this time, of course, he's having to shuffle around money and nobody really knew. My, But my dad was again, like not the most organized person. So it was like, uh, you know, that's not uncharacteristic either. So I think the nature of the argument was this specific customer, client, whatever, wanted his money when he wanted it. And my dad didn't have it the exact time that he wanted it. And so he was then, and I don't know if he demanded the actual silver at the time or what, but it was definitely around that. And so when my, when he stormed off, my mom went into the office and, you know, was like, Hey, what's up? What's, you know, what was that about? And my dad basically explained, you know, he's wanting his money or the silver, one of the two. And my mom basically said, okay, well then let's give it to him. And my dad said, I don't have it. And that's when my mom was like, wait, you don't, what do you mean you don't have it? And he said, there's no silver. And that's when my mom was just like, what? Like it, it was a, she didn't understand really what was going on, but that's when she knew okay, something's not right here. Something is, and, and what now what do we do? So that's how my mom found out. And then you said, so this happened about two weeks before November 15th, the day of the raid. Mm -hmm. um, did your mom report this to law enforcement? No, not, I mean, not then. No, I mean, I can understand her being in total shock. She doesn't know anything. All she has is, what's going on and this doesn't make sense and why is this happening mm 
Yes. But just for completion on this part of the puzzle, this is, if I'm correct, what your mom ended up pleading guilty to was not telling law enforcement within the, those two weeks. Yes. And ratting out her husband on based on her suspicions. Yes, that and she signed at least one more check from the account knowing that there was some sort of dishonesty. Again, she didn't know what was going on. She knew something was wrong. But at the time, she was still continuing with regular business practices. And so there was some there was I know at least one. There could have been a few others. There was at least one check that went out from this, you know, dirty money that I think she understood, like, okay, again, something's going on, but I don't fully understand. So because she did not immediately call the police on my father, and because she didn't completely stop doing her job that at that moment, mm-hmm. that's why she was sentenced to prison for 18 months. All right, before we leave your mother's story completely, because we're going to shift to yours, and what sure. happens on November 14th, the night before. The so actually, breaks. it was the night of November 15th is when I... So the raid happens on November 15th, but you're out of state. You live out of state quite a ways away, correct? I'm just a little bit away. (laughs) Right. And okay. So let me see here. Can I ask a quick Uh, question? Yeah, please do. And maybe you covered it. I was trying to do a little bit of research and try to find a couple other things here to share later in the show. But did did we say like what kind of callings your dad had in the church and what kind of positions? Did we cover that? No, but I'm happy to. I'd love to know kind of what church callings he held. Um, Sure. So... (laughs) My dad's relationship with the church is interesting. Um, Growing up, we always heard lots of stories about his mission. Um, His mission was like this big, amazing thing in his life. Um, He he has expressed multiple times that that it saved him. And uh, he was really close with his mission president. Um, His mission president, uh, his mission president, I think it was his oldest son, came and lived with us for, for several years while he was going to BYU and studying. Um, and then he and his wife came and I mean, we, growing up, we had very close relationships with, um, with his mission president's family. In fact, I even went to Japan when I was 12 for a month and stayed with them and visited with them. So we were very close and and that was a really big thing for him. Um, I think calling wise, the only callings I remember my father having was he taught like, um, he taught Sunday school for the youth for a while. Um, he did have a calling as a ward financial clerk, ironically enough. And he did that for a while. And he always complained about it. He always said how the church's financial system was so screwed up. And he claimed that they, it was dishonest. Um, he, I just remember him hating it. Um, but he didn't, he didn't really hold major callings because t- to be honest, he didn't go to church all that often. Um, I remember him being at church with us when I was a kid. Uh, when I was quite young, but when I got into being a teenager uh, and when I was like in young women's and stuff, uh, he, he wasn't there and he, he often would work. I mean, my father was definitely a workaholic. Um, I think that's how he dealt with his, a lot of his trauma and he just didn't want to face being in reality. And so he created his own reality by working and creating these businesses. And so, um, he would work himself sick and often be sick on the weekends and then not be able to go to church. Um, but then it, and then he, over the years, it turned into, he, you know, he claimed that he was just allergic to the chemicals that they used to clean the building. And 
I believe is his daughter. I think it was something that he mentally kind of created, but he literally would have a physical reaction if he went into the building. Like he believed it so much that if he went into the building, he would then, you know, his eyes would swell up. And so that was his like justification for not going to church, even though he would definitely claim that he was an upholding, you know, a temple recommend holding member. Um, and yeah, so the only, Alicia? yeah. I have a physical reaction when I enter an LDS church too, but I don't think it's because of the carpet. Cleaning. I'll tell you, I can relate to the story. When I was a teenager, my legs used to itch terribly when my mom would have me do dishes. And so I would always get out of doing dishes because my legs would itch and they literally did. And mm -hmm. I think it was all in here because I do dishes today in my home and uh, my legs don't itch anymore. Yeah. I think it was because I was so, I had such a aversion to doing them that I had a reaction to doing them. Yes. All and right. I agree because I have a similar reaction now going into the church, but it's for different, very different reasons. <laughs> Alicia, is it fair to say that even though your dad wasn't really going to church very much, but that he presented himself publicly and in a business way as being an uber Mormon? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, he would, he would praise our family for the, you know, amazing things that he did. And, and I, especially the years that I was there working with him and seeing, you know, some of his clients who were also high up members of the church. Um, he, they would come in and they would talk about, you know, oh, like my brother's being on their missions or when we would get married in the temple. And it was when he was talking to other people, it was this like, you know, he would, he, it was such a grandiose thing that he would talk about. But then at home, if I, like, I remember even when, when, <laughs> when me and my siblings were getting married and it, we, you know, Hey, we're going to get married in the temple. Like let's figure out the days where we're going to go receive our endowments or get sealed. It was like pulling teeth and it was, Oh my gosh. Like it was, he just complained about it. And it was such a, you know, a horrific experience for him. But on the outside, when he was presenting himself to the public, he was extremely charismatic. And, and that's why I brought that picture up of him sitting in front of the, the piano with, Joseph Smith, who you didn't get to see, but it's a massive portrait of Joseph Smith. Um, I mean, that's always how he presented himself. And even though he didn't go to church, he was very vocal and participated in like certain ward things. Like I remember growing up, one thing we did often to earn money for girls camp or, you know, some of the young men's activities or whatever, we would do a big um, spaghetti dinner with a big auction. And my dad was often the one who was the, the commentator. He'd be up there with the microphone and he would be entertaining people. And of course, you you know that he was going to be the highest spender because there was he wanted to have this persona of like. And, and I there's a part of me that wants to say, oh, yeah, it was all just about him there. Like as much as I it pains me to say it because I'm still processing a lot of stuff around my father. I do think that there were times where he was genuine. I do think that there were times where he really was trying to be helpful and, and that what he was doing mattered, but it was definitely, I mean, he, he was two different people at home. There was, we, there was my dad that I experienced on a day-to-day -day basis. And then when he was outside, he would put on this persona that didn't make sense to me. Um, but that's what we lived with. So. There is part of the Ponzi scheme phenomenon that the perpetrators typically take steps to appear affluent to others because they want to get them to invest and get these incredible returns, like 25% returns on your silver certificates. 
So they've got to look like they are very, very wealthy. And I'm not trying to impugn your dad on this particular aspect, but it does make sense to me that appearing publicly and being the biggest bidder is sending that signal as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's something in the news reports about racehorses and thoroughbreds, which we don't really need to get into that your dad purchased. Uh, quite a few, apparently, and some were in the Kentucky Derby. Is that right? No, that's not, that's my like dad's dream. That's totally oh. not correct. Where did uh, I get that? Was that in the news? No, story? no, they said they said it. It was in oh, the okay. news, but it's not true. Okay, um, but like that would be my dad's ultimate like high in his whole life if he had a horse in the Kentucky Derby. Well, they're we pretty grew expensive. Up, we grew up on a. I grew up on a ranch. Horses were always a thing for my dad. Um, not that's part of the news story that I think they used to really kind of make it a little bit more than it was. I mean, yes, he had racehorses and I'm sure that some of that dirty money went there, but that was something that was established well before this happened. Okay. Well, there's the other aspect that I do want to talk to you about, and that has to do with mistresses. Sure. And I don't need to get into that too much. The intent is not to be salacious, but to have you repeat the story about one particular mistress of your father as that impacted your mother. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just kind of tell you the story of how I found out about this. Um, so on November 15th, 2018 is when I discovered that, um, something was up. I learned the next day on the news, what was like how bad it was, but I learned this the end of 2018. So in February or I know it was February. Um, middle of February around Valentine's day, I, my mother called me and the whole family was like in disarray and I live up in Alaska. And so I'm very kind of removed from a lot of this. Um, but like, I mean, so much stuff happened. Like all of my accounts were closed. Like the, I financially we were in a major bind and, um, because of what had happened. And so we would call each other every so, you know, every little while. And like, we couldn't talk about things because we were under a gag order by the court. So we couldn't really talk about what was going on, but it was more like, Hey, are you know, how are you doing mentally today? Like, how are you doing emotionally today? And my mom had called me and, uh, and she had just said, Hey, I, how are you doing today? I have this miracle that I want to share with you. And I was like, okay, like I wasn't necessarily having a particularly happy day, but I'm like, I'm all about good news. Like I could use some good news right about now. So my mom starts, she proceeds to tell me this story of how the previous day she had been madder at my dad than she'd ever been in his entire life or in her entire life, that she was yelling, that she was throwing things. And, uh, and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, like what's worse than dad, you know, what's, what's worse than what's already happened. Um, that's where my mind went, but my mom was so excited to tell me about this miracle. So I was like, okay. And, and she said, I was really angry. And essentially I went to bed that night. I didn't know what to do about it. And I just prayed that, you know, the savior and the atonement would somehow help make this better. And she got really emotional and basically told me that she had this wonderful experience with the atonement and that it had just healed her heart and that she was, you know, just so, had so much peace and love and that everything was going to be okay. And I was just like, I mean, I didn't really know how to respond. I thought, okay, like, I'm okay, cool. I'm glad you had this great experience. But again, all I could, the only thing that I was hearing in my mind was, your dad did something that made me madder than I've ever been in my entire life. 
And this was a year, not a year, this was several months after we had found out about the Ponzi scheme and everybody in our family had lost everything. So that night I went home and I just was laying in bed sick to my stomach. And I kept telling my husband, like, I think, I think my dad's had an affair. I think that that's what's happened. And, um, and years previously, the reason that the abuse came out about my dad was because I had thought his behavior was very it correlated with patterns of having an affair. And so that's why I pushed on it because I was like, I, this really happened. I want to know. And he denied it. He said, oh, no, I've never cheated on your mom. I've never had any affairs like that. But it, my behavior comes because of this abuse. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, dad said that he didn't have any affair. Like, and, and at this point in my life, I was still hopeful that my dad, even though, yes, he broke the law, I was still like hopeful as a daughter that, there, that he was a good man. Um, so I couldn't deal with it any longer. It was making me crazy. My husband said, I think you just need to call and ask your mom tomorrow. So I called her and, uh, and again, she was in a very cheerful, you know, attitude. And I said, I know that you had this great experience, but I haven't been able to like get past this phrase that you said to me. And I need, and I just need to know, like his dad had an affair and, uh, and she got really quiet and she said, I'm not going to lie to you. Yes. And I basically said, what the, like, what happened? And essentially what had happened was my father had been, because of this alternate life that he created, he had been, when he would travel and whatnot, he, this other person, he even had a name and everything, he would be this other person and he would go and have relationships with other women. Well, one of them found out that he wasn't actually who he said he was and was blackmailing my father. And so she when the money- his real identity. Yes. So my father was sending this woman money every month for, I think it was almost 10 years. And it equated up to over $3 million. Holy crap. In order, in order for it to, to not come out that that's what was happening. When the money stopped, because of course the FBI closed everything down um, and seized all assets. When the money stopped coming, she, this woman dug around and figured out who my father really was and sent um, pictures of her to my mother in the mail that she received on Valentine's day. And uh, so that's what my mother received in the mail that made her angrier than she had ever been in her life. And um, so that's how we found out that, okay, there's a lot more than just the money. There's a lot more going on here than just lying about money that's when we all found out that, okay, clearly my father is lying about a lot of other things. And honestly, that's been the harder part to deal with. Can you tell us about the checks your mother wrote? Yeah. So my, the, my mother was the one who wrote the checks to the, that equated over $3 million to this woman having no idea who they were going to. She just thought it was another one of the, you know, clients that wanted to stay anonymous that she was sending their investments to. And that was under the direction of your father. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's shift to you because we've gotten just a little bit out of sync chrono chronologically, and that's fine. I just want to go back now to November fifteenth of two thousand and eighteen, which is two weeks after your mom thinks, "What's going on with this argument that's been happening in my husband's office next or across the hall from mine?" and 
there's no silver. Uh, what's what's up with that? I don't understand. So two weeks later, November 15th, 2018, mm -hmm. you get a phone call. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in Alaska and uh, my business that I have here, uh, it was our three year anniversary. And so we were having kind of a big celebration um, party and we were setting up for that. And um, I was I was getting ready to do kind of a lecture and then my husband had made this amazing food and we were just getting it all ready. And I got a phone call from a, a unknown number and I silenced it. And um, because I was like, I don't have time to answer the phone right now. And because of the line of work I'm in, I do a lot of, I'm a naturopath. So I work with a lot of people with health and um, with health, but physically, but also emotionally and mentally. And so he said, because I often say this as well, like, Hey, this could be an emergency. I should probably answer this. Well, I didn't answer it, but they left a voicemail and my husband said, hey, this could be an emergency with a client. You might want to just double check that. So I listened to the voicemail and the voicemail was from, I, I cannot remember again, because there's so much shock involved in this experience. I I don't know if it was an FBI agent or a member of the, S, the CFTC, which is the Commodities Something Trading Commission. Um, somebody left me a voicemail telling me that my father was being investigated by the FBI for fraud and that I would be receiving documents in the mail because I was a, a relief defendant in the case. Can you tell us what relief defendant means? As far as I know, <laughs> sure. So um, in the case, there were defendants and relief defendants and the defendants were my father, my mother, my brother my oldest brother. And then there were relief defendants and I was a relief defendant as well as one of one of the business entities or something. And basically my attorney explained it to me as such that I faced criminal or not criminal. I faced um, civil charges, but not criminal charges. And my, my, the rest of the, my family faced criminal charges on top of civil charges. And that the whole goal was to make sure that I didn't get flipped into a defendant. Right. And I just looked this up just so you know, and that sounds exactly like what it is. It's a federal kind of thing. I hadn't heard of this before. In the U.S. and possibly other common law countries, a relief defendant or nominal defendant is a person named in civil litigation who is not accused of wrongdoing. Let me repeat that part, who is not accused of wrongdoing. However, it is alleged that the relief defendant has received property originally obtained illegally and to which the relief defendant has no legitimate claim. We'll talk about that here in a minute as it impacts you. It is not necessary that the relief defendant receive the property in, in question knowingly. However, a valid negotiated consideration creates a legitimate claim. Okay, well, we don't have to get to that part, but that you're a relief defendant. So in other words, someone who did not do anything criminally wrong, but may have civil uh, litigation ramifications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that happened. Did you just get the message? Is there a call uh, number yeah. to call back? So I, I got the message and I was like, what the hell? Like, and, and I literally said, I don't have time for this because I was going, I had people literally pulling into my parking lot. Because you've got no idea. I mean, you have no yeah. idea about anything that's going on. You're in Alaska. Yeah. Your mom hasn't told you about what happened two weeks before. No. And, and to tell you the truth, I thought it was a big joke. I was like, this has got to be a joke. Like, I didn't take it seriously. I went in. I did my event. We had a fabulous time. 
Um, and then as we were leaving, my husband was like, hey, maybe we should call your dad and figure out what that was about. And so it was probably, it's like around, I think we finished up at like 9, 9.30 Alaska time. So in Utah, it would have been 11.30 at night. And I called my dad and I was like, and he was totally ready for this phone call. I thought I'd be waking him up. I thought he was going to be angry because I had woken him up so late. And he was, he answered immediately, was right there. And I said, hey, I just got this really weird phone call. And before I could even explain, he said, I know, just answer their questions honestly. This will all go away. It's not a big deal. He said, but just answer their questions honestly. And I was like, okay. I said, and I, and I, I think I asked a few other questions, but he kind of just shut me down with that same response. Like, don't worry about it. You know, yeah, there's some weird stuff that I got to work out, but like, don't worry about it. It's, it, it's all going to go away, but yes, call them back and just answer their questions as honestly as you can. And I was did like, he, okay. Did he tell you that the story had been raided by federal no. authorities? No, no. So when I, on the drive home, I was like trying to process, I was like, what the heck? I listened to the voicemail like over and over and over again. And they had called from the East Coast. So I wasn't going to call back because it was four hours later, their time, whoever called me. And, uh, but on the drive home, I just kept thinking like, this is, this isn't making sense. So I called my brothers. So at the time, so I have three brothers and one little sister. I'm right in the middle. So I tried to call my oldest brother who kind of runs the show, right? And thinking, He'll know. And he didn't answer. So then I called my second brother who didn't work at the coin business. He worked at a different business that my father had created. And I called him and he was like, I don't really know for sure what's going on. But like, yeah, like dad's being investigated. And so he didn't have a lot of information. And so I was like, OK, I guess I'll just like I guess I'll call and talk to mom tomorrow or something. I don't know. Well, shortly before midnight, um, or shortly before 10 o'clock, so it was midnight Utah time, my oldest brother called me and he said, Alicia, you need to get a lawyer right now. And I was like, what? Like, I just talked to dad. He said this wasn't a big deal. And he said, no, listen to me. This is a big deal. I just spent however many hours being interrogated by the FBI. This is a serious deal. Your name is listed on the paperwork. You need to get a, a lawyer. And then I was then I was kind of in a panic, but I still didn't fully understand because he couldn't talk to me. Legally, he was not supposed to talk to me because we had a gag order on us. Um, but he knew that I wouldn't because I was so far removed that I wouldn't know what was going on and that I needed some help. The next morning is when I found out what was going on through the media because I had gotten onto KSL and I had seen what had what had taken place that there was a raid. And that my my father was being investigated for a Ponzi scheme. And you have given us that clip of what you watched on KSL Media the next morning, which I guess would have been November 16th of 2018. Yes. Let's play the clip. And then I want you to tell us when it's over what you were feeling and thinking as you watched this in real time. Utah are more likely than anyone else to lose money in investment fraud, and we lose more per capita than residents of any other state. So why do so many relatives, friends, neighbors? I think that's the third one. 
dollar Ponzi yeah. scheme started right here in Utah. Investigators say the well-known precious metal dealer duped at least 200 people. New specialist Caitlin Burchill breaks down the allegations and has ways for us to avoid getting tricked. Caitlin? Hey, Deanie, yeah, this is Rust Rare Coin here in Salt Lake City on Broadway. Now, there's usually precious metals and other coins displayed here throughout the day. That wasn't the case today. We were here last night as they got raided. It's an American Silver Eagle. Salt Lake resident Daniel Jesse invests in these coins. I, every paycheck, I just go down and buy five Silver Eagles every payday. He's been doing it since 2012. His go-to store? I've never gone anywhere but Rust. Rust Rare Coin. They have some really cool stuff in there, yeah. but I had no clue that um, a paper market was even anything that they offered. And like, wow, I was shocked. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> he had planned to stop in today, but owner Galen Dean Rust and his company are accused of creating a $170 million Ponzi scheme that crossed state lines. Here's how it worked. FBI agents said Rust tricked friends, family, and other folks to pool their cash with the promise they'd make big bucks buying and selling silver they never touched. Supervisory Special Agent Michael Pickett was at last night's raid. He's seen similar things happen to many Utahns. I hear we're very trusting. We're hesitant to talk about it with authorities uh, because that diminishes that hope and there's no way they're going to get their money back. He urges people to look for red flags like high pressure sales tactics and something that's just too good to be true. And what we do too many times is we, repl we replace due diligence with that trust. So we don't do our homework. While Jesse says the Ponzi scheme was never pitched to him, he can see how people got sucked into the glimmer of silver. But he's glad he stuck to his gut. Well, the old adage, if you don't hold it, you don't own it. Oh, man. Well, I reached out to Russ multiple times, but haven't heard back from him. If you think you're a victim of a similar crime, call local your local law enforcement agency. And I'm also going to list some resources for you on our website very soon. Back to you. Like your interviewee said, make sure you do your homework. Caitlin, thanks. That's the place that you used to work. That's your that's your dad. They're talking about what are you thinking as you're watching this? I was in such shock. Like I was laying in bed that morning um, because I knew that there was going to be a new story that broke. And, uh, and so I just laid there and I mean, yeah, I mean, shock is the only word I can use because yeah, the, seeing, so the building that I worked in was actually the building next door. My brother had remodeled and, and they had moved into this newer large building, but I had been in there many times. I mean, my family worked there. We had friends there. I knew everybody that was part of it. And, and it was like to see it on the other side with these FBI people and the, the yellow tape across the door. Like it was so surreal. It really is one of those things where it's like, you see this kind of stuff in movies, but it like, I was living it. I mean, it was the most, yeah, I, we, it, I think honestly, I'm not even exaggerating. I think it took me two entire weeks to be able to like catch my breath after this. It was just, we didn't send the kids to school. Like nothing happened. I stayed in bed and just like outside of hiring an attorney because I had to do that. But I'm like, glad to hear that much. Yeah. <laughs> but outside, I mean, we just, it, there was this bomb that exploded in our world and, and there, and it is it, just trying to wrap my head around. It was never going to be the same. Like it was devastating. Can you tell us, 
what the impact of this was on your home and business? Yeah, so my business that I had celebrated three years in a brick and mortar, I had had the business going. Um, oh, is your business's three-year anniversary? Yeah. Not your yeah. marriage anniversary. No, 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 no. Not my marriage anniversary. My okay. business, the anniversary of my business, right. my brick and mortar store. Um, my the reason that, yeah. So the very next day on the sixteenth of November, everything was closed. All of my accounts were frozen. Every asset that I had was frozen. It was basically seized by the receivership that was put over it by the federal government. And the reason being was um, my dad invested in the startup cost of my business when I moved to a brick and mortar location. And he had purchased, um, he wanted to have investment property in Alaska. And he's because this is a fantastic place to have real estate right now. And uh, so he said, well, let me buy the building then. Um, and, and he just invested in the startup cost. And then we had this plan that he said we were going to put on paper, but never ended up getting to paper because he just kept reassuring me that everything would be OK. And I had no reason to believe that my father would lie. Um, so he purchased the building that my business was functioning out of. And um, his money, he, he sent money so I could purchase my products up front or whatever. Um, so that's how the money touched my things. And because there was essentially when it came down to the federal government said, um, there's no way of knowing what dollar went where. So basically, because there was a dirty drop that went into the bucket, we're taking the entire bucket. So everything was then all of the sudden theirs. And um, actually the only money that we had to our name on the 16th was $150 that I had won in a game of poker the night before, the two nights before, because every every account we had was just frozen. And um, we managed to get an attorney because we had friends who were willing to help front some money to put a, a um, help me with the word. I lost retainer. it. Yes, a retainer. Thank pocket fee. aces, by the way, <laughs> to have something to buy some groceries with. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we were able to get an attorney and, um, and this was right. In, I mean, think about this. It's November 15th. You know, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Christmas is right around the corner. I have three little kids. So there were members of our ward at this time. I was still in the church. There were members of our ward that that, you know, just bent over backwards to to make sure that we were OK. So I will forever be grateful to them because otherwise we would not have made it. Um, so working with my attorney, basically what I was what I was um, being accused of was receiving a lot of money that I then had to disgorge. And the amount that they wanted me to disgorge was eight hundred and I can't remember if it was $850,000 or $875,000. And the reason they had pinned that to me was because my dad had put me, my name on several of his cards or accounts or whatnot, so that I had the ability, if there was something that went wrong up here in Alaska, I could go make sure that property taxes got paid. One of the properties had, was right on the ocean and there was a seawall to make sure that it didn't erode the bluff. And there was, you know, fees that had to be paid with that. And so the money would be put into an account and then I could go and make sure that the right bills got paid and whatever. Um, so there was a lot of money that they could see had my name attached to it, but it was never mine. It was all moved somewhere else. 
Um, so my attorney said, you know, essentially we can fight this and there's no way that this number will stand, but the amount of money that you will pay in legal fees, the amount of time that it will take to resolve this and the toll it will take on your family in, you know, he said, in my opinion, is not worth it. And he recommended that we, we strike some kind of deal. And the only thing I had to my name was our home. And so he said, I know that this is an awful like situation, but he said, I, my suggestion is that you, that we approach the receivership and basically ask that, Hey, if we sign over your home, is there any way that they would bring this number down? So in the spring of 2019, I made the hardest decision of my life. And I signed a piece of paper that gave my house to the federal government so that I did not have to take my family through this mess any longer. And we were homeless. And, and my business was, you know, we were desperately trying to make to salvage something. Um, my husband had just separated from the military six months prior. And uh, we were trying to make the really difficult decision of, do we go back into um, a career field that really um, is a whole different story, but took a really difficult toll on our family. And we realized we couldn't do that again. And uh, we lived in the garage of family friends for six months until we were able to get back on our feet. And even then it didn't last long because all of the credit cards that my dad had debt with that my name was attached to came to me. And so we were just drowning in credit card debt. And so uh, in the fall or in the spring of 2019, we attempted to move in with my in-laws, which was short-lived because that's a whole nother story in itself. And it was not a healthy place for us to be. And the last place we could go was the home I grew up in, which is where my mother and my father were living. So we moved in with my dad. What was that like? I don't think there are words to describe that experience. I mean, the only reason I knew because I had lived with my father and his weird manipulative, like his weird behaviors my whole life. And I was starting to make sense of like, okay, you know, I, I knew how to maneuver him. Um, and the stuff that was happening with my in-laws was so damaging to my husband and the effect it was having on my children. I thought, you know what, I can deal with being in the same house as my father. So this is the better choice because it's going to protect, you know, my husband and my children. Um, and it, it ended up there were some silver linings that came out of it. Um, my, my, as soon as we moved in, it was about a week later, my mother, I think finally received enough information. She had received text report or the, the text, whatever reports from my father's phone to the text records or something for several years and, uh, read through all of those and realized that my father was actually not, you know, he continued to manipulate and tell lies to my mother to get her to stay with him. And uh, she finally got to the point where she realized he was just living in a reality that he was never going to come back from. And she didn't want, she couldn't do it anymore. And um, so she kicked him out and said, I want a divorce. Um, and that was a week after we moved in. And I'm grateful that we were there because I don't know if my father would have left if we were not there. Um, so because his grandkids were there, because, you know, we were there, 
I think he, even though he still tried to manipulate the situation, he actually left. And I think my mom was finally able to get out of it. But yeah, like, I mean, again, like, I feel like this is something I would watch on a movie and be horrified, but it was my life. Can I ask just for the audience, because I know they want to know, how are you doing now? Well, um, <laughs> you're not in a garage, right? I'm not in a garage. Okay. I'm not in a garage. Um, I'm doing, honestly, I'm doing probably the best I've ever been in my life, but it's oh. taken a lot of work. Um, I, this was kind of the, there were some other things that were happening personally with me at this time that started to break my shelf when it came to my testimony in the church and my dad, seeing everything that happened with my dad was really what made the, everything fall apart. So, um, and there, there was a lot, I mean, a lot of trauma, a lot of stuff that I had to deal with. And, uh, I, we were in survival mode for about two and a half years, um, maybe even longer where all we could do was survive because every day something new happened. We would find out more information about my dad and, um, or my mom would get sentenced and that's, we ended up having to move again because even though we moved in with my mom, when she got sentenced to jail, she lost her home too. So we were essentially homeless again. Um, so, I mean, there was just, it was one thing after another and trying to figure out how to talk to my children. My children were, I think when this happened, let's see, nine, seven, and four. So, I mean, it was just some really difficult conversations, but I think the biggest thing for me and, and partly a big part of why I'm here talking about this is because my dad got away with what he got away with because of manipulation. And I feel like the church do things in a way where they teach you to not trust yourself. They teach you to abandon yourself and trust these things outside of you. And there were so many lies that went on in my life growing up that I, I knew something was wrong, but I, it wasn't okay for me to believe what I was feeling because it went against the narrative of what the church wanted me. And my mom was so dedicated to the church and like, bless her heart. Like, I mean, that is her thing and it does good things for her and I'm glad, but it is not good for me. And that's why, that's why it's not good for me is because I refuse to live in a world that is not real. I refuse to live in a world where it's okay to tell lies and everybody puts on a face and, and pretends that things are okay because people get hurt. And so I finally decided that I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to defend my dad. I'm not going to defend the church. I'm not going to defend anybody that is causing me harm. I am for, for the first time in my life at the time when I finally started doing this, I was 33. I'm 35 now. It's been a journey the last couple of years working specifically on myself, but I refuse to, to abandon myself. And, and so telling the truth, even if it hurts, telling the truth, even if it makes people uncomfortable, you know, pulling the curtain back and exposing the lies that people are, are thriving in because they have power and money. Like I'm not willing to do that anymore. So it was a lot of hard work. Um, and, and it's still going to be a lot of hard work, but things are finally coming to a close. Um, my brother actually was, had his sentencing hearing yesterday and one positive came out of that. They, instead of having 18 months, they gave him six. Um, so we're thrilled. And by the way, like it's not, again, it's not my whole story to tell, but I will tell you my brother had absolutely not 
like nothing. He knew nothing. But to protect himself and his family from going through a, a long trial, that's he took a plea deal as well. And thankfully, it was a lot smaller than we anticipated. So I feel like things are finally kind of coming to a close and we're all trying to figure out how to rebuild our life and and live like live in reality with a purpose that matters instead of trying to make, you know, pr protect people's feelings and, and uh, a, a perspective and a, a narrative that, that a lot of people live in and like feeling comfortable in. And like, I'm just, I'm tired of the bullshit and I'm not willing to do it anymore. I'm glad that you're doing so much better. I'm glad that your brother got the sentence of six months instead of the 18 months that you were expecting. I want to let the audience know that there is another large component to Alicia's story having to do with her shelf and it's breaking, which we are going to be inviting her back on the show to tell because it's another entire show. We were talking about how we're going to fit this in with this and there's just no way because it was going to blow everything up time wise. But it's every bit as fascinating as tonight's show. And we hope to have you back four weeks from tonight uh, on Mormonism Live. But I do want to talk a little bit about this because I know it's not just your dad. He may have done one of the biggest 200 million or so uh, fraud schemes in Utah. But this happens over and over and over and over again. And it's been happening. I have no idea when it first started. Maybe the Kirtland Anti-Banking Society. <laughs> might be where it started. I'm not sure. Or it might have just been treasure digging. You know, I don't know. It's the same kind of idea, isn't it? We're looking yeah. for something that's not there. And, you know, you can pay me to look for something that's not there. And I'll pretend I can see it underground. And dang, it sunk away again because you guys didn't do it right. <laughs> so because this is such a huge problem in the church. And I know that your dad was extremely famous for his reputation. So he didn't just defraud people who are members of the church. He defrauded people who are not members of the church as well. Yeah. Um, and hang on just a second here. I think my camera accidentally unplugged it. Yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll see if it comes back. Anyway, as I was saying, the church, the leaders of the church are completely aware about this. They know this has been happening. They have to know about it. It's in the news all the time. They're dealing with it on a regular basis. And I would think that church leaders would be more proactive about warning their members in specifics about not being taken in by these types of scams that other members of the church prey upon them to get. And this has to do with people losing their entire life savings, elderly couples, losing their homes because they've given it all for these types of scams that promise amazing returns, returns you couldn't possibly get anywhere else, not legally anyway. It's the get-rich-quick schemes, right? But the only time that I am aware of remembering that this was ever addressed in general conference was a few years back by Elder Ballard. And it was in a talk that he gave and I think it was called The Trek Continues. Yes, it was. It was in October 2017, the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference. And the way that he even talks about it, I mean, he gives two sentences to it at the end of a list of four things. 
And so if we can play that clip, it's from timestamp 748 to 848 in that talk. It's one minute long. And we'll hear his entire list of warnings to members of the church. I can church. put mine up, Maven, if you want. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, keep the doctrine of Christ pure. Can we get the volume up? Be deceived by those who tamper with the doctrine. The gospel of the Father and the Son was restored through Joseph Smith, the prophet of this last dispensation. Do not listen to those who have not been ordained or set apart to their church calling and are acknowledged by common consent of the members of the church. Be aware of organizations or groups or individuals claiming secret answers to doctrinal questions that they say today's apostles and prophets do not have or understand. Do not listen to those who entice you with get-rich schemes. Our members have lost far too much money, so be careful. In some places, too many of our people are looking beyond the mark and seeking secret knowledge and expensive and questionable practices to provide healing and support. An official church statement issued one year ago states, we urge church members to be cautious about participating in any group that promises in exchange for money, miraculous healings, or that claims to have special methods for assessing healing power outside properly ordained priesthood holders. The church handbook counsels members should not use medical or health practices that are ethically or legally questionable. Local leaders should advise members who have health problems to consult with competent professional practitioners who are licensed in the countries where they practice. Okay, I think that's enough of this particular quote. Now, I was wrong. It wasn't at the end of the last, it wasn't the last thing he said. It was embedded in the third thing, the third warning. It all kind of gets mangled yeah. together there as he's going through it. But there were two sentences in that list of warnings, which itself is a subset of his entire talk, which is itself a subset of the 40 different talks that are given every general conference. That was it. And Bill, you've been a little bit quiet tonight. I know you've been busy. Your, yeah. your silence doesn't mean you're not doing stuff. No, I no, no. I've got that. some thoughts. But I want to ask you, Please. what do you think about that as a warning to the saints, to the members of the church over which Elder Ballard is an apostle? Do you think that warning is due diligence in getting the message out to them of what they need to be careful of? First off, notice he says, watch out for things that require tons of money and promise miraculous results. And I think that also describes the LDS church, right? <laughs> 10% of your money and eternal salvation and all that good stuff. Now, let me, let me put a couple of things. I'm going to actually put this back up on the screen here after I move this page over. So let me show you a few things. All right. So fraud seen rampant in the Utah. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormon Church, are particularly susceptible to various schemes because faith in one another spawns promoters to take advantage of the Mormon connection. Now, note, by the way, they're trying to kind of fluff it up by saying um, 
anytime you're in a community where people rely on each other, you're susceptible to this. But the reality is Utah is unique. It isn't happening in the Southern Baptist area. It's not happening in other strong religious areas necessarily. It seems to be uh, an issue. I was looking up while we were talking here, uh, while you guys were having the conversation, I was looking up year to year the stats. The best I seen Utah do was sixth. And they were often somewhere between first and fourth in these in who led in Ponzi schemes in the state. And the other states varied because it really takes one guy screwing people for $20 million to put that state up in the top four, right? But the reality is Utah is in that top five or six and really in the top four year after year after year. So ramp it in Utah. Let me put another one up here. The Mormon Madoff, how Sean Merriman scammed millions, and he took 21 million from people. Let me put another one up here. Uh, former Mormon bishop pleads guilty in Ponzi scheme. Uh, this was Julius Blackwelder, because I want to make sure we're not duplicating articles. That's 2013. Yeah, yeah. And this one is 2012. That's Julius Blackwater as well. So that one's a duplicate. Let's go to this one. Uh, former LDS stake president pleads guilty, scamming 1.5. A million from member. This is Robert Glenn Mortensen, no, uh, former state president. Yeah. Now, by the way, remember, the Lord makes no mistakes in his calls. That's what we're supposed to have faith in. Uh, You're quoting Father, President Eyring, I know. Yeah. Father's son used Mormon faith to lure investors into 220 million Ponzi scheme. Uh, this was Wendell Jacobson and Alan Jacobson. Let's put another one up. Um, let's move this one over. Mormon financial scammer sentenced to 14 years, Rick Korber. Okay, there's another one. I'm not done yet. This one. What year folks, was that? Uh, let me get rid of it for a second. That was 2019. Wow. Okay. Oh, here's an one we're all going to recognize. Paul H. Dunn. And you can read uh, the Salt Lake City Messenger, which I believe is Sandra Tanner. Uh, you can read that article there. But Paul H. Dunn was involved in one to the point where after he was caught, he backdated a letter that he got out of the whole operation, but it was shown that he was actually, that he actually fraudulently backdated the letter and he actually hadn't got out by the time the Ponzi scheme was caught and known to be a Ponzi scheme. So note that, that the dishonesty of Paul H. Dunn. Uh, former uh, Area 70 in New Zealand was prosecuted for fraud, so I clicked that one to see what would come up. And I think it's this one right here. Yep, this is in Nigeria. This is a uh, uh, Area 70 in Nigeria who scammed people out of 1.2 million. Are there scams um, in Nigeria too? Yeah, well, there's lots of scams in Nigeria, but this one happened to be a LDS 70, uh, Area 70. Uh, Rick Korber, I think we already maybe mentioned him, but that was another one. Uh, articles here in Utah that warn uh, people of fraudulent risk. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, this one I have by accident. This is where James Huntsman's suing the church for their fraud. I don't really count that one. Um, so anyway, but let me say Utah seems to be a prime area for these things to happen because you're, you're taught to trust priesthood. You're taught to um, trust um, the church leaders. You're taught to uh, trust certain countenances. You uh, are uh, taught to go along with things and not push back when something doesn't feel right or healthy. Uh, I want to note a couple of things. In that second video that you guys played, 
they told us what to watch out for. They said, um, they said, hi, let me look here. High pressure sales tactics. That sounds like the missionaries. They said too good to be true. That sounds uh, like um, the true and living church, the only true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased. And they said, if you don't hold it, you don't own it. And that sounds to me a lot like eternal blessings. And so when Mormons are in a, um, a culture that teaches them over and over to accept things, even though something doesn't quite fit or feel right or seems like a deception, they're going to fall for deceptions in other places in their life. And you and I were talking this week in preparation for this. It seems like it would benefit the LDS church to point out Ponzi schemes everywhere because most of these are members of the church. And if these people weren't losing millions to fraud, they would be investing those millions in legitimate places. And some of that money would come back as 10% tithing to the church. So you and I in conversations this week, I was asking you, I said, it seems like it would benefit the church. So why don't they talk about it more? Because the only real big thing that they did was this Ballard two sentences, as you pointed out, while we were talking, I did find a couple of other articles that are very peripheral that the church is talking about affinity fraud. So at least they are able to say we talked about it, but they don't seem to really want to emphasize this. But not There's in a, general conference, right? These other two. Yeah, no, no, no. These are just little letters that were sent to bishops that were supposed to read it once in a, in a ward and move on. Um, so they were, they were just peripheral things. So I have to ask myself, because being the guy I am, I, I'm always asking, like, why does this not fit what I would think it would fit? And the only reason I can come up with is if you teach people how to spot a fraud, they're more likely to spot the fraud that you are. And so there are my thoughts on uh, on tonight. Okay, well, has that brought up anything to you, Alicia, before I give some concluding thoughts and we open up to phone calls? Yeah, I've I've thought so much about that same thing going through this experience with my dad and I feel like if the church was actually to emphasize, hey, watch out for this, it would require individuals to actually pay attention to their own feelings. And I think, you know, for me, when I started actually realizing, wait a minute, if I pay attention to myself and not what the priesthood leaders are telling me and not what the other general authorities are telling me and not what so-called the spirit is telling me based on the definition by these same priesthood leaders, I'm starting to have critical thinking skills and realizing, wait a minute, this stuff isn't adding up. And I, in my experience, when I started using my critical thinking skills and applying it to, you know, a lot of those things across the board, I realized there's a lot, it's not just with money, you know, that's why I think so many people are getting away with abuse and the church wants to defend the abusers and not the abusee. That's why there's a lot of there's there's so much domestic violence that gets swept under the rug because we don't want to have the priesthood. You know, there's just so many problems that I feel like are getting that people get away with that are by not the way, by the way, that's that's another thing that Utah is at the top of the list year in and year out is sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, that data is also number one. We're not bragging about that one either, RFM. Yeah. But it, it, for, for me, that's what's tragic about it is I think that there's a reason why they don't want to emphasize it, because if more people start having these critical thinking skills and actually listening to what their intuition is telling them, then they're going to lose a lot more than just money. They're going to lose power. And and for me, I, I think that's where a lot of it stems. If they can keep people from actually acknowledging that within themselves and keep continue to look elsewhere, continue to look for the direction from 
the men at the top and listen to the spirit, but that's defined only by the men at the top, then they have that power still. And as long as they have the power, then the money continues to flow. So I, for me, it's, it really goes down to an individual. As long as people continue to stop thinking for themselves, then, then they're happy. Well, I want to tell you that, Alicia, that I have experienced a lot of emotional reactions to your story as you've told it tonight. And maybe it's because I can see you now. And some of the things I wasn't even quite aware of how awful it was. Uh, obviously, I knew a lot because we've talked on the phone several times in preparation for this. But on top of that, as I've been thinking about the lack of, well, let me, let me tell you what I would be doing if I were a leader in the church. There would be an entire talk in general conference every general conference about affinity fraud in Utah, that this is the capital and of affinity fraud. We don't like that. We don't want to be the capital. And we certainly don't like it that the members of our church are being bilked out of money, their life savings, their houses, all these horrible things that are happening by other members of the church. And give example after example after example. These are the flags. These are what you look for. If you don't hold it, you don't own it. Everything. An entire 20-minute talk, every general conference. Because the leadership of the church should not be quiet on this issue. And they shouldn't be quiet on it until it stops happening in the church. There should be a no tolerance. And with these other things as well, of course, with domestic violence. But right now we're just talking about the um, specifically about the affinity fraud. But it's all it's crickets as far as I can tell out there. And yet year after year and sometimes multiple times in a year, these news stories are out there. This is going on. It continues to go on. And the leaders are not doing one damn thing to stop it. And then the other thing that really occurred to me that really hacked me off is that in priesthood meetings and maybe in other uh, church meetings, but it just seems always to be in priesthood meetings that there is a passage of scripture that is repeated with such frequency that I knew exactly where it was. It was in Ezekiel chapter 33, where it talks about the watchmen on the tower and that the priesthood holders are likened to be the watchmen on the tower. I mean, you've heard this, right, Bill? Yeah. By the way, Alicia, have you ever heard this? Okay, you've heard it too. Okay, so it's not just priesthood. But boy, we got it hammered in. And the whole idea of it is that there are watchmen on the towers to look for the enemy. And it's the job of the watchmen on the tower to warn the inhabitants of the city if the enemy is coming. And if they warn that the enemy is coming and people get killed anyway, well, that's on the that's the fault of the people who didn't listen to the warning. But if they see the enemy coming and they don't warn the people, that's where the last verse, verse six, comes in of this passage. But if the watchmen see the sword come, that's the enemy, obviously, and blow not the trumpet to warn the people, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from, the, uh, from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. It is the fault of the watchman, and the sin is upon them for not warning the people. And I'm not planning on doing this, and I'm not trying to grandstand, but I do want to address the leaders of the church right now. And I trust that the Strengthening Church Members Committee that monitors this show will pass along the message that the sin is upon the leaders of the church for all of the grief that has been going on in people's lives, including yours, Alicia, which is no small matter. 
and all the other people affected and built out of their life savings, their homes by members of the church who are trading upon their position in the church, their prominence in the church, their activity in the church in order to get trust from people to allow them to bilk them out of this money, to scam them and to steal their hard-earned savings over a lifetime of saving what they can in order to have something to retire on and then having it stolen. This is on you, leaders of the church, and it will continue to be on you. And I'll just talk to you directly, Elder Ballard, because I understand you have a history and a past that is somewhat shady in this regard as well. But it's on all of you. And if you don't warn everyone, why is it why is it our responsibility at Mormonism Live to warn the members of the church about this? And why are you not doing your job? Unless you don't see it as your job, this is going to be the last thing I'm going to say for now. Anytime, and I've said this before, I'm going to say it again because this is a classic illustration. Anytime there is a conflict between the reputation of the church and the welfare of the members, church leaders choose, choose the reputation of the church every single time. They don't care about the members of the church. At least if I'm going to be totally parsing this out, they do not care about the members of the church more than they care about the reputation of the church. Well, here's the news flash. President Nelson, the reputation of the church is how you treat the members of the church. That's what establishes your reputation not by pretending there's no problem and hoping no one will notice while your members are out there getting uh, fleeced for everything they have. How you take care of the members of the church is the only thing that matters in establishing the reputation of the church. Okay, now we have one other video clip to play. This is generally about Ponzi schemes. It may cover some of the things that Bill already said. It's a good thing to end with. But before we get there, if we can give the number so people can call in while this brief clip is playing. Yep. So just really quick, if the church can dedicate an entire conference talk to the scam known as Ponderize It, then the church sure as hell can spend a conference talk trying to help its members of the church not get caught up in affinity fraud. And again, I understand LDS Church. It's going to be really hard to give people the signs of affinity fraud without also somewhat showing your cards that some of those things are found within your church and how you present yourself to others. But if you can do that, if this guy can get up there for 15 minutes, sure as hell we can help save uh, Utahns tons of money over the course of their lifetime for falling for this stuff. If I can just flesh that out a <clears throat> bit, Bill, that was unexpected and a wonderful point that you made. In 2015, a general authority gave up, got up and gave a 15-minute conference talk in which he's talking about ponderize this and ponderize that and ponderize some other damn thing. Yeah. And as soon as conference is over, his website go, goes up. The, the, the second his talk ended, they had already copyrighted and gotten patents on all of it. And the store went up, the online store to sell ponderize merchandise. The moment his talk ended and it became obvious to all of us critics, we knew right away like, hmm, something isn't right here. And once again, it's the critics who figured out that something was off and discovered that there was a scam going on. Yes. And even if that's not a scam, what it is is using your position in the church to promote something for your personal interests, right? Yeah. So 
By the way, if my recollection Pedro is Pitano. correct, you would have thought this guy would have been fired. He would have been made an example of. The next thing we'd be reading about in the front page of the Tribune is his uh, getting his walking papers and no longer being a member of the church. But if I remember correctly, he was actually asked to talk again in the following conference. Yeah, what's, uh, what's he doing today? That I'm not sure about. But we're on the verge of going super long, although I think it's been worth it. I hope Just the FYI, audience Just FYI, I'm looking him up really quick. He is yes. uh, still a counselor in the church's Sunday school general presidency, maybe. I, if somebody could maybe look that up. Wow. What's but, his name uh, again? Uh, Devin Durant. That's right. Devin Durant. Middle name Ponderize. <laughs> Devin P. Anyway. Durant. There you yeah. go. So if, here's the, the phone number, 662-MORMONS or 662-667-666. That's my favorite part. Seven. 662-667-6667. Say that three times fast. Get on the phone. Call in if you want to ask Alicia a question or make a comment about this. I'm sure a lot of people want to share personal And we've already got three people had. in the queue. And if you can, keep it brief if you can, because I know these experiences can get you know, well, they're bad experiences and they take some time. So hopefully we can keep these things brief. Is it okay to play this last clip? Because this says a lot of important things. It's not about the Galen Rust situation specifically, but it's more general and has some good information in it. Become victims of financial scams. ABC Forrest Brick Aaron goes looking for an answer. Utah is known for a lot of things, most of them positive. But according to a new study, we are the nation's capital for Ponzi schemes. It's the classic fraud where early investors are paid with new investors' money until the scheme inevitably collapses. Attorney Mark Pugsley works to recover money for victims of investment fraud. He took data from a 10-year study by PonziTracker.com and applied it to Utah, discovering that we lead the country with 1.35 Ponzi schemes per 100,000 residents, nearly three times as many as second place Florida. If you take away the massive Bernie Madoff case in New York, we lose more money per capita than any other state, over $502 for each resident. Pugsley says that many victims are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hey, I'm paying my tithing. I'm a good person. I have a temple recommend or whatever it would be. Therefore, if I invest in this, then I'm going to be blessed and somehow Heavenly Father will protect me from getting scammed. And unfortunately, that doesn't work. Five years ago, I spoke to a victim who lost thousands to a scheme operated by Davis County businessman D. Randall, who was then still a free man. Chances are he's probably driving some nice car still, and he's living in a house you know, that he still owns. So they need to go take that house away from him, take his cars away from him, and give him, you know, make him go out and buy a bus pass and ride the bus. I mean, that's what I want to say to him. I mean, I'd l love to say a lot more. In 2017, Randall was sentenced to 30 years in prison, but there are plenty of others happy to take his place conducting the same type of fraud. I hardly ever see cases with less than $100,000 in losses. So these people really do get wiped out. And I see uh, people... Uh, I had a really sad case a few years ago where I, uh, after we tried to get the money back and just had no luck, um, the man who was in his 70s told me that he had to go back to work bagging groceries at the local grocery store just to pay for his wife's medication. Pugsley tells me he would like Utahns to become educated enough about these schemes that his phone stops ringing and he could go into another specialty of law.
Reporting in downtown Salt Lake City, Rick Aaron, ABC4 News. That seems like the money line, right? That uh, members of the church believe that if they get involved in any kind of investment opportunity, that Heavenly Father will protect them. The Holy Ghost will bless them to know right from wrong and not get involved. And the guy said that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I don't think it's going to be a shock to anybody in our audience. But unfortunately, there are many, many thousands and perhaps even millions of members of the church that haven't gotten that memo yet. And when yeah. they do, it's going to be a real expensive memo. Yeah. Yep. We've got three calls in the bank. Do you want to? Yes, please. Think? Let's do it. So the first one, um, I think this is someone by the name of Rob. Rob, you're on the air on Mormonism Live. Is that your name? Yes, sir. All right. I'm, uh, in yeah. my own little bunker in the, I'm in my own little bunker in the Pacific Northwest. Got you. Um, First of all, I just want to thank Alicia for coming on. I'm yeah. my heart kind of breaks. I have daughters too, and I know how that feels. Um, I there's a gentleman in the church who goes by the name of Russell M. Nelson. I uh, it's his autobiography a while back, and and now his autobiography is online, and uh, he accompanied the then apostle Hubie Brown. Um, after the Washington, D.C. temple dedication, and they immediately went down to the Caribbean on a cruise on a boat called the Sailboat Celestial. And it was owned and captained by a Mormon named James Dyer, uh, who was involved in his own Ponzi scheme. And he was using his connections to the brethren and prominent Mormons uh, as a selling point in getting Mormon investors in this scheme called Research Homes, which is similar to the thing that Grant Hathrack was involved in in Utah. Um, but Russell and Hubie Brown had a great old time down in the Caribbean, cruising around the Virgin Islands. Uh, Truman Madsen was in them, you know, just a wonderful time with this guy who is screwing over other Mormons. And not just other Mormons. I think it was Graham Kerr, the Gallatin Gourmet, and the presidential press secretary, I think, got involved, too. But anyway, uh, where was the discernment? You know? You got this apostle. You got this self-proclaimed prophet, you know, who prides himself on his discernment. And they're just, you know, being suckered by this, their patches, basically. And it's just kind of disgusting because that's the tactic that these guys use, you know, the Ponzi scheme with their closeness with the brethren. You know, so they're adding this religious element to uh, their business. And if you read Russell's autobiography, he traveled all over the world. There were always people who were while on church assignment, they take him sightseeing out somewhere. When he was in South Africa, he spent four days going to different national parks and stuff as he and an area authority meandered on home after their church assignment, you know? So it's high up, it's endemic, it's incestuous, and that's all I have to say. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for calling in. And I will tell you that uh, I'm sure that they had the photographer there snapping away. 
on each of these excursions because my understanding is is that you get a picture like that of you with your arm around president nelson or any other church leader and then you make glossy eight by tens frame and put them up on your wall prominently displayed when you have your potential investors come in to talk and those are worth a lot of money those pictures it's almost like having Believing you have the Holy Ghost and that it can discern truth from error makes you more susceptible to affinity fraud. <clears throat> Just saying. Okay, uh, James or Brad, I'm not sure the the name here, but uh, you're on the air. You're on Mormonism Live. Uh, your thoughts tonight? And and state your name, please. Uh, hello, my name is Brandon. Brandon, perfect. Thank you, my friend. What's uh, what's on your mind? Uh, first of all, I'd like to say. Um, I'm inspired by uh, Alicia, by your story and your strength. And I um, appreciate hearing, um, um, hearing from you. I, my question, um, after having been um, deceived for so long by someone that you trust, how have you learned to trust others again after, I feel like a lot of people, um, I, I've never been anything near what you've gone through, but I do feel like a lot of me and, um, Many viewers have uh, felt a betrayal of trust in our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, I mean, that's a really good question. And to be 100% truthful, it's still something I'm working on on a daily basis. Um, one thing that helped me more than anything else, and like I said, it's still something I'm working at, but something that made a big difference is, um, I think it came from a book I read called, see if I can even remember the title of the book. Um, uh, emotionally, or ch adult children of emotionally immature parents, something to that effect. And the author talked about allowing the fantasy of the whoever betrayed you die. And that was the hardest thing for me because realizing being betrayed by on such a deep level by this man who I believe to be somebody different my entire life um, was crushing. And I, most of my, like, I didn't want to admit that he was really who he was. I wanted to hold on to this idea that I had created in my mind about who my father was. I wanted the, I wanted the hero. I wanted the hero on the white horse that would come in and save me if something happened. And here was this same person, but he was actually the one doing the damage. And so the, the thing that has helped me the most is actually grieving the fantasy of the person that betrayed me, the person that I wanted them to be. Um, it helped me get to the point where I could step into acceptance of this is what really happened. Um, and when it comes to regaining trust, to tell you the truth, like I said, it's something I'm still working on, but I had to learn how to build trust with myself. And the reason why I can say I'm in the best place I've ever been is because I finally abandoned the things that were teaching me to abandon myself. And I created a relationship with myself and I built trust there. So even though I'm not sure I trust many people outside of myself and my husband, and even in some days that can be rocky, um, but I've worked to regain trust with myself. And now I listen when I feel things. I listen when I have those gut feelings and I don't let anybody tell me, tell me otherwise. Um, and that's where my journey has led me when it comes to rebuilding trust. 
Perfect. This will be the last call for the night. This is Jim. He said he was in Sean Merriman's, I'm assuming, ward. Um, Jim, you're on the air on Mormonism Hi. Live. You've got a, a story. And it, is that the right name? Yeah. No, it's Kim. Kim, sorry. The thing dictates what you say, and it sometimes gets it yeah, wrong. it's fine. It's got worse I grammar than I me. Was, yep. All right. Please. <laughs> Thanks for addressing this subject. It's really important. Yeah, we uh, were in the same ward with Sean Merriman in Colorado for years and uh, saw this wealth that he accumulated so quickly. It was pretty amazing. Uh, cars, big houses, safaris, you know, just all this stuff. And an interesting story is he also invested in original Rembrandt and and Art Masters originals, particularly showing Christ. And he had this collection, and the uh, stake president decided this would be a great missionary opportunity to show these uh, original Rembrandts that he had that Mr. Mr. Merriman, Sean Merriman had bought. And so this trial, I don't know, it was more than three stakes, four stakes. It was this huge event. Around Christmas time, we all were, had our assigned time to help, you know, just come off and invite your friends. This is a great missionary opportunity to show, you know, to show off, basically, I guess, is what we were showing off. Well, what this man had achieved but it was just so ironic to think that this was a missionary event. And I don't know, there was many state presidents. There could have been general authorities. I can't remember. It was in the newspaper. It was in the Denver Post. Um, he was on TV, too, about how important these, these pictures were to him because they portrayed Christ. And, uh, and then to think where that money came from, it's just so, I think back on it, it's just stunning. Kim, Kim, it is stunning, and I agree with you. Thank you. And you may be surprised to know that there's a cross-reference in the art collection and art investment with Alicia's dad, Galen Rust, as well. Isn't that right, Alicia? Uh, probably. I might I might not be aware of it, but probably. <laughs> well, the investments in the arts? Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, his whole thing was wanting to create a business music program that, that helped youth. So, yes. Yes. So that seems to be a, a common kind. I don't know. At least there's two people. And it does. It's it's difficult to wrap one's mind around when you're doing something this shady, this destructive, that at the same time, you're overcompensating maybe in another direction uh, to show how righteous you are, yeah. certainly paying your tithing on your ill-gotten gains, making sure that the Lord gets his cut. Um, but uh, yeah, by the way, this has been so great. Alicia, thank you for coming on tonight. And before oh, we close, really though, I'm sorry, I, I, I spoke over you. Thank no, you for coming okay. on tonight. Thanks for having me and just having this space where I could share my story. I appreciate it. Yeah, you have done such a great job. I've been in awe of how you have been able to tell your story and everything you've been through and how you're coming back from that. But I do, I would want to get um, an opportunity for Maven to weigh in because I'm guessing that she has something, some thoughts about this that maybe she'd like to share. Maven, Maven, are you there? I'm here. Um, I don't really have anything more than what has been said already. Um, 
there is kind of a, I guess, discussion going on in the chat um, with uh, Paul Gregerson just really wanting to insist that it's not the church's fault um, and just kind of missing the whole point of it. But um, I feel like uh, we've established pretty well on this show as well. I mean, we're not the only ones that have talked about it either, but it is an issue. The reason why it's an issue with the church, even if it does happen with other religions and in other places, um, that doesn't detract from the church's responsibility to its own members. So it doesn't matter who else does it. It's not that we're just selectively targeting the church just because we hate it. But we have all been in the church. We've all been influenced and we've all been harmed by it in many ways. And a lot of people have been harmed in this way in particular. And it's something that the church contributes to. That's all. Well, thank you for letting me know because I can't see the live chat. And that's probably a good thing. But Paul Gregerson, I will tell you that if the church spent one talk every general conference warning its members about these types of things and other members preying on them, not two sentences in the history of general conference buried in a bunch of other warnings, like we saw here, that doesn't even talk about Mormons being the perpetrators, the being the ones that you have to be leery of, especially. If they do that, if they get the word out every general conference, I know there's still going to be people who won't get the message, who will still have faith, who will still get scammed. Once that happens, I'll agree with you. But until that happens, I am going to have to disagree with you because this is the church's fault, because they are silent on the issue that they know is going on. They are the shepherds of the flock. The flock is getting eaten by wolves, and they're busy polishing their Rolls Royces. Yeah. Yeah. Again, appreciate your time, Alicia, just as RFM said. Anything else from you, my friend? No, that's it. Thank you again so much. This has been, I, I think this has been a really landmark episode. So yeah. thank you so much, Alicia. And once again, she'll be back hopefully in four weeks to tell this other mind-blowing part of her story. And I was just going to say, I, I hate to do it after we just covered what we did, but I'll just mention the donations again. And I'll say this too, by the way, I'll put our website up on the screen. This is the main umbrella site for everybody. All the podcast series are there. All the hosts are down there. But at the very top, you know, we're transparent about our financials. You can go in and click nonprofit financials. It'll give a year by year uh, synopsis of what was what has occurred. I'll just say for transparency reasons, I have a salary of $65,000. Um, I don't get paid anything for the content that I create. That's just a salary for running the business side of this uh, that you don't see me doing. Um, all the content, I don't get paid any extra for that. All of the information, what we do year to year is there. You can click any one of our tax filings and you can go into uh, that, for instance. And so you can go in there and uh, and take a look at our 990. Um, but I just, oop, I should probably get rid of that. I just want to mention that um, you do go onto the website, you click donate and you essentially, you can donate to any one of the podcasts from that main umbrella site. Or if you want to donate to this show specifically, the easiest way Go to mormonismlive.org. I was just telling folks at the beginning of the show, there's 411 people in here right now. And uh, those 411 people, there weren't that many in the beginning. Um, our donations have slipped off a little bit in the last three or four weeks. If folks could go there and just donate a few bucks a month, it helps us to keep putting content out. Each of our podcasts, I think, are doing great. This show is, uh, I think, number one among all of them. Um, if folks can help us out and keep kind of all the work that we're doing going, that would be much appreciated. Otherwise, I've got nothing else. I think you did a great job, you two, and incredible show. Thank you. I'll just say three things about uh, the uh, donations that are asked for that you're talking about, Bill. Please. 
Number one, we're not going to ask for 10% of your income. No. Number two, we're not going to guarantee you 25% return on the money you invest. And number yeah. three, we're not going to hinge your eternal salvation on giving us the money. You'll get no eternal blessings for donating to us other than we'll keep giving people information and helping people walk away or at least make informed decisions if they stay. Amen. Amen.